Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Sarah Walsh and Doug Dillerman, very intrigued to see if you're on the same wavelength when it comes to today's three very different films. And we're going to start with one that's had uh, a lot of hype in the headlines uh, before it's come here to New Zealand, First Man. Sarah, would you just remind us what the story is here? Damien Chazelle, who was the director of the award-winning Whiplash and La La Land, here turns his extremely able hand to something completely different for only his fourth feature film in this biopic of Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon, focusing on the quiet, modest man behind one of the most famous moments in world history. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin. We have a go for main engine start. The entire world's watching. Nine. Do you question whether the program's worth the cost? Seven. In money and in lives? We Five. What are the chances of not coming back? Four. Those kids, they don't have a father anymore. Three. So you're gonna sit the boys down? Two. And you're gonna prepare them for the fact you might not ever come home. One. Do you think you're coming back? Okay, Sarah, well, let's have a look at the all-important casting when it is based on you know, a real person. It's incredibly important. And this is Ryan Gosling. What do you think? What an interesting casting choice. Now, obviously, Gosling's worked with Chazelle before, in, uh, notably in La La Land. But I have to say, I'm a huge fan of Gosling. I, I feel as though in everything he does, he is an actor that shows considerable range. And so while some might think, oh, he's, he's kind of a pretty boy, what are you thinking? Gosh, he, he manages to really portray this character's humility. And Neil Armstrong's humility and deceptive passivity is uh, sort of reminiscent of the troubled, determined motorcycle stunt rider that Gosling played some years ago in The Place Beyond the Pines. Uh, but then again, completely different from his singing, dancing, romantic lead in La La Land. So here's a guy who can do anything. And he's got a big challenge because Neil Armstrong is famously sort of a rather dull fellow, apart from the fact that he did something Remarkable. extraordinary. Yeah. And so he doesn't get to fall back on a bag of pyrotechnics that other actors would get to in order to liven up this part. He hardly even gets to crack a smile. There are a couple of very, very wry moments where I wouldn't even call it Neil Armstrong making a joke particularly. You're absolutely right. And Ryan Gosling, as a, an actor and as a, as a person, feels like somebody who does have that twinkle in his eye. So I understand that he worked incredibly hard to decide how to render, as you say, someone who's relatively taciturn and, and undynamic. And he does an extraordinary job. He's absolutely captivating. I mean, it's a fine line, isn't it? You want it to be entertaining, you know, you have to mm. capture people's imagination, but you, you want to be, what, fairly faithful? Do you, do you feel that they're being pretty faithful to Neil Armstrong? 
I would say so. And I tell you what was even more impressive, probably, Lynn, is the uh, actor cast as Armstrong's wife is Claire Foy, the British actress who shot to fame as Her Majesty the Queen in the Netflix series of The Crown. Now, Foy is a wonderful actress, and she is so non-Hollywood that I actually give Chazelle even more kudos for what I consider to be kind of a brave but very smart casting choice with her. Because in the wrong sort of Hollywood hands, the strong-willed Mrs. Armstrong could so easily have been played by, you know, the beautiful and talented Margot Robbie or someone with the flashiness of Amy Adams. But no, instead Foy, who brings incredible depth. And to me, I saw Her Majesty's steel-like presence in this role of what otherwise, as a 1960s housewife, could really have been relegated to a token role. Sure. I think on the issue of fidelity, though, it does feel... I mean, there's a certain tension in the movie because it's directed very subjectively. A lot of it's very much from Neil Armstrong's close perspective. And that's one of I'd say that's one of the selling points. You know, October films, we've had a science fiction film almost every October, like Gravity or The Martian or Blade Runner 2049. That's very aimed at adults. And this is a very different film in terms of how insular in a lot of ways it is, and wedded to that perspective. And so instead of having, for instance, the very opening scene, you're thrown into this flight that's uh, breaking through the atmosphere, and you almost never leave the perspective of the cockpit or perspective facing into the cockpit in this shaking machine. And mm. you can tell... It's very it... much a first-person movie. That's yes, the thing. In- yeah. indeed. So you have these scenes, but then you also have this writerly arc to it that yokes Armstrong's story to personal grief without getting too specific. And Mm. and, uh, you can almost feel the tension of the scriptwriter, who I've forgotten the name of, but he wrote The Post as well, who's written with sort of a traditional take a biopic and make it all about this theme. Mm. And the directorial interests, which are, you know, half about the subjective experience of space travel, and then half this very almost bucolic, relaxed look at life around Houston in the years leading up to the flight mm. and domestic life that almost recalls the tree of life without the uh, portentous voiceover about mm. God and nature. There's nothing rushed about the film at all. I, I mean, look, the thing with this, Lynn, is it is not about the landing on the moon, although, spoiler alert, obviously that does happen. But it's not an action movie, Doug, at all, is it? And yet there are mm. moments of incredibly high tension and action and we were in an absolutely packed screening where for two hours 20 minutes you could have heard a pin drop and that is unprecedented. Yeah and I think what's really extraordinary is how Chazelle finds moments that other films would gloss over Mm. and make symphonies out of them. There's a, a a minute where Gosling and his co-pilot are sitting in a capsule before it takes off, just waiting for the countdown. Mm. And the attention to detail, the little fly that's in there, the flicker of sun that comes through, um, looking the at the details. Sweat, um, yes, the sweat on starting the to form. Yeah. Um, and especially the sound. I mean, that scene alone deserves an Oscar for uh, best sound and mm. sound effects editing, never mind the whole rest of the film, which I suppose from somebody who's done music films, that attention to sound might be one of the only connections you might uh, Mm. notice at first glance. Yes, quite a departure for Damien Chazelle, but Mm. you're impressed by it, by the sound of things. Are you recommending this film? Absolutely. He's 34. 
He's extraordinary, but yes, recommending it. I do recommend it, and I do think there is a bit of commonality in the uh, tough man. There's a bit of the martyrdom that you see in some of the other films. There's a moment where Armstrong breaks a wine glass in his hands and gets stigmata that reminded me of the bloody hands of the drummer in Whiplash. Mm. Um, Also, just very quickly, you alluded to uh, the news articles about this film, which are a load of nonsense. There's been this controversy about that they don't show the scene of Neil Armstrong planting the flag on the moon, Mm. and the relentless first-person-ness of it makes it clear that that's really beside the point. I mean, the American flag is featured prominently in many scenes. There's no attempt to remove it from the film. It's just not what the film is is about. Yeah, it's not focusing on that. It's it's patently obvious that they're in a, a race against the Russians. That much is made clear. And it's patently obvious that they land. So yeah, It's yeah. just another installment in this endless silly culture war that people are fighting about nonsensical issues. Right. First man, total agreement. On to bad times. The El Royale. Doug, if you do the honours for us, what is this all about? Well, a vacuum cleaner salesman, a priest, a hippie and a soul singer check into the El Royale, a once glamorous establishment that falls across two state lines that's now abandoned, save a sole caretaker. But no one is who they seem to be. And on a dark and stormy night, the past won't stay buried long. The El Royale is a bi-state establishment. You have the option to choose a room in either California or Nevada. How'd you end up at the El Royale? The Ritz-Carlton was booked. This place used to be hustling and bustling. Old Dean Martin even sang a song about it once. This is not a place for a priest, Father. You shouldn't be here. We might need to work on your sales pitch, son. <laughs> the El Royale. No place for a priest. What is this? Is this a mystery, a thriller? How do you describe it? Well, that's part of the, I suppose, both fun and challenge that uh, critics have when they have this kind of film is how to talk about it without really talking about it because a lot of the joy of the film is finding out what it is as it goes on. And uh, director Drew Goddard, first film Cabin in the Woods, relied on an extent even more of this surprise of taking what seems a familiar premise and undercutting it a bit. How would you describe it? Oh, the way I'd thought about it, and I wrote this down in my scribbles in my notebook during the film, it looks like a Wes Anderson movie crossed with Twin Peaks. Narratively, it feels like The Shining meets Pulp Fiction, and it's also reminiscent of the best Agatha Christie movies, where you're introduced to a motley crew of characters uh, with mysterious provenances, and then you sit back and you watch as all their awkward interactions lead to murder and chaos. And you do sit back. I mean, this is a leisurely film, um, one that relies heavy on source music. Um, There's any number of needle drops. And from that aspect, it fits into a post-Tarantino vein. Very much, Um, yeah. It's fun as well, right? I mean, I found it really enjoyable for two-thirds of the film, probably further than that. Yeah, it's a roller coaster. I I was in it from the start. There's a Cracker Jack opening scene. Yeah. And then it gets a bit slow, and there's a couple of questions I had why John Ham's accent seemed to be wavering so much, and I won't spoil how that resolves itself. But then there is a certain quietness to the pacing at certain points, mm. and it is a movie that requires patience, particularly if you're not fond of Motown music. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff Bridges and John Hamm and uh, Chris Hemsworth and Dakota Johnson are the marquee names. But this is really Cynthia Erivo's movie, and if you're like me, you're probably saying, who? Uh, but she did win a Tony for her turn in The Color Purple. Um, she's been snapped up by director Steve McQueen to appear in Widows, which will be coming out later this year, and then off the back of that... 
she was cast in this as the um, soul singer whose arc over the film really becomes the heart of the film. And in a film full of reprobates, she's the one who uh, we find ourselves really drawn to. And it's really interesting that Goddard allows her, or chooses to allow her to sing lengthy, lengthy scenes. A cappella. Beautifully. And I was absolutely enthralled. And that doesn't normally happen. I'm normally a bit like, yeah, we get it. Let's have one verse. Let's move it along now. Get back to the action or the narrative. Mm. But her singing was extraordinary. And I think it helped, actually, to build attention. In a ga- again, in a film of two hours, 20 minutes, which is, you know, slightly taking the mickey nowadays. <laughs> and particularly one that's ostensibly a horror or a, a suspenseful film. And yet I was very happy to sort of luxuriate in, in her magnificent performances but I think also because it was part of the, the device he was mm. using, the sort of the metaphorical ticking time bomb, that you knew something was going to happen. Yeah, Goddard is really, I mean, he wrote World War Z. He wrote Cloverfield, uh, obviously Cabin in the Woods. He was involved with Lost and Alias. And so he's, he knows genre inside and mm. out. And so he really knows genre mechanics and how to undercut them. There's a fantastic turn in the third act where there's a character who reveals something about himself that will create an entire belly laugh in the audience when this seemingly timid character reveals something. And then we get the story behind what he's revealed and it catches in your throat. Mm. And that's, um, I think there's a way to enjoy this movie that's just about kind of these clever mechanics and turns. And I think that's what most people have gotten from it. But I think there's also a deeper sort of dig into the rot of America and what's this superficially beautiful hotel that has this dark underbelly and we have you know we have Nixon bubbling in the background we have Vietnam we have Manson bubbling in the background this is a period piece uh, and so there, you think it was more because I watched it rather superficially so I'm yeah. interested to hear you think that there that Goddard definitely has underlying messages there's a moment that I think is the heart of the film where uh, we have sort of this typical third act sadistic moment where you have the villain and I won't spoil which character that turns out to be who has everybody else kind of tied up and is enjoying tormenting them and uh, directs a line towards uh, Cynthia Erivo, who delivers a return monologue that's Mm. relatively concise, but actually not only just kind of stops the character in his track, almost stops the fabric of the film and really undercuts what up until that moment would be that moment of sadism that we find ourselves queasily enjoying and playing along with. A la Tarantino. Yeah, Yeah. and, and it becomes... Arguably the film's Me Too moment, but it's not even cheerleadery enough to be that. But it gets at the fact that this kind of storytelling covers up sort of the dark trauma that a lot of its characters realistically have been through. Very and there's true. a moment where that joke isn't funny anymore. Yeah, very true. And yeah, so that's what that's what I think it's playing at. Does it take need 140 minutes to get there? No. Not necessarily, and that's the biggest drawback against it. Yes. For me, it was like um, it's like one of those parties where you, you're having such a good time and then you're suddenly aware you're having the best time ever and then it goes on too long. It was a less satisfying denouement for me than I'd been hoping for, to be perfectly honest. And I understand that, but I think some of that's because of the pacing earlier on. And also, when the final um, music cue of the film hits, just as it cuts to black, I actually got goosebumps because it's the perfect moment at the perfect time for the that character, and that's all I'll say about it, but it's rare that I get goosebumps at the end of the film. So it redeems itself by the end, doesn't it? Uh, It did for me, It did for me also. Excellent. 
total agreement. Now we're on to Venom. And Sarah, I think you're going to, I think that the title says quite a lot about what the film is all about, but you're it going does. to give us a, a quick summary. Journalist Eddie Brock finds his life overturned when a run-in with genius scientist Carlton Drake leaves him out of a job and out of his relationship. In his quest to discover the truth behind Drake's mega company, he is infected by a symbiotic alien life form named Venom, who has black goo for a body and an appetite for flesh. Suddenly, good guy Eddie Brock has to grapple with superhuman strength, as well as instincts and actions that suddenly cast him as a baddie. We are Venom. I'm Eddie Brock. I'm a reporter. I always seem to find myself questioning something the government may not be looking at. I found something really bad. And I have been... Who said that? Taken. Look around at the world. What do you see? A planet on the brink of collapse. Human beings are disposable. But man and symbiote combined. This is a new race, a new species. A higher life form. What do you want from me? You'll find out. I'm so sorry. Okay, coming off the back of this, Doug, I think this isn't the first time Venom's been brought to the screen. No, and unfortunately it won't be the last because this movie has uh, hit the box office on fire. Um, Spider-Man 3 featured Topher Grace playing the part in 2007, and honestly I hadn't seen it, but I took a look at some clips after the film, and he acquits himself rather well in there. He's believable as a reporter. Um, he has some center to his character, and it's entirely different from this film, which, to be fair, is probably directed to people who were in nappies when 2007 was around. Uh, the first thing I wrote down was that nothing about the setup of this film is plausible. And if I just crossed out setup, that could have been my entire review. But apart from that, it feels like, you know, superhero films have gained this sort of cachet in the last decade and they've aspired to be something bigger. You know, there's talks about films like Black Panther potentially being Oscar bait. And this almost sets the cause 15 years back. It mm. reminds me of one of those early 2000 films where everything was trying to be really tough and clever. There's even an Eminem song. There's a scene early on where Eddie Brock gets on his motorcycle and this guitar lead comes in. But that's actually the least of its problems. You know, the filmmaking's clumsy, choppy. There's this endless 45-minute setup before we get to Venom. There were actual snorts of derision in our screening. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was pretty hard to keep how we felt a secret because of just how visceral the reactions got at a certain mm. point to this mess of the film. Any, of those, of, the, any of those sorts of derision coming from you, Sarah? Yes. It's one, <laughs> of the, it's one of the few times, Lynn, when I would have walked out just by dint of thinking, you know, I actually have better things to do with my time, were it not for the fact that we had a professional obligation to be there. I wasn't even curious about how it was going to go. And look, Tom, 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 Tom Hardy 
who, again, I think is a fantastic actor with considerable range. My goodness. I can't believe I'm having to say this, but he's actually kind of annoying. His performance is all big hand gestures, broad American accent, none of the nuanced character that he's shown in far better films. And when we think back to Legend, where he ate up the screen playing both Cray brothers and rightly negotiating double pay for his trouble, good on him, Hardy was incredible in that and incredibly enjoyable. And in this... I mean, Venom itself is a film, badly written, badly characterised, badly acted. And everyone is wasted. I mean, Michelle Williams, she can save almost any movie. She saved I Feel Pretty, which was a nothing burger of a movie. Um, and er- yet every moment she was on screen, it was she had a magnetic performance. But here she's just this nothing of a girlfriend who's a plot device. I don't know um, why I don't know why she accepted the role. You I always, hope it means a new house for her. Well, that, this is the thing. You always have to wonder, because she is utterly wasted. And you can tell that they're trying to make her a slightly feminist sort of role, because she's a lawyer, notwithstanding we never see her at work. And she miraculously figures out the alien's Achilles heel. But other than that, they then dress her like a Japanese schoolgirl in a tiny little tartan skirt and have her running around being soppy, and she loses all credibility. Michelle, 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 what are you doing? <laughs> and the, look, I think when Venom actually shows up on the scene, it goes from this kind of lugubriously plotted thing to something that has a dark comic element. And director Ruben Fleischer did Zombieland, which, where he showed he could combine black comedy or, and horror, but neither note really hits here. Mm. And I think I would have liked them to push it from black comedy to black comedy from the outset, I think you probably would have gone the other direction. But they would have been having some fun. Riz Ahmed, who can be a crackerjack actor, is just bored as anything. As one as of those typical, yeah, typical CEOs of an evil corporation. You know, really nothing to play with. And yet he does a very good job with next to nothing. Yeah. The thing that really kills this film for us, Lynn, though, is Doug and I had relatively recently watched an independent movie or a, a much more low-budget movie called Upgrade, in which... An ordinary guy uh, is rendered a little bit um, hapless and is injected with artificial intelligence, which enables him to have superhuman strength and preternatural sort of knowledge and understanding and power. And goes on a violent rampage. And he even looks like Tom Hardy. He looks like Tom Hardy, but isn't. Thanks, Logan Marshall Green. And it's a tremendous film. And it's innovative and original and clever and, and has everything you want from an action movie. All of a sudden, chuck millions more dollars into the budget, Tom Hardy and Michelle Williams, whom we've said are utterly wasted, and we wind up with Venom, and it pales in comparison. There's rumours that 40 minutes of it have gone in the uh, chopping block. Tom Hardy said his favourite 40 minutes of the film were cut. And there's moments where it's like you could see that might help the pacing, but from what's there, there's just scenes that can't be saved. Mm. And it's it's teased at the end with uh, Woody Harrelson, who's going to be playing a character called Carnage. I will say that if you go to this movie, do stay to the very end. We left, but apparently at the very end, there's five minutes of the inco- upcoming Into the Spider-Verse, which is an animated Spider-Man film that combines all these variations of Spider-Man, including uh, Peter Porker, the spectacular Spider-Ham. And uh, just the trailer that we saw beforehand had more wit and verve than the entirety of Venom, and those who've stayed till the end loved it. So... If your life choices bring you to this cinema, uh, it is worth staying to the end for that, I suppose. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And... 
don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.